Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, what a pleasure to be able to introduce uh, Rabbi Wolpe. Uh, it's uh, both very easy and very difficult to introduce Rabbi Wolpe. It's easy because there's so much to say, and it's difficult because there's also so much to say. As FDR said, we should be sincere, be brief, and be seated. Well, Rabbi Wolpe, as we all know, is one of the most influential thinkers in America and indeed the Jewish world today. His views on the most essential issues of our time and the most controversial debates uh, are sought out by Jewish leaders, world leaders, the media, scholars, and all of us. I think of Rabbi Wolpe mainly as a Max Webb Senior Rabbi of Sinai Temple, where he's our spiritual leader who educates, inspires, and challenges us. But more broadly, as many of you know, He's been named the most influential rabbi in America by Newsweek and was one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post. Well, he's also our peripatetic rabbi, seeming to be everywhere. Rabbi Wolpe has spoken hundreds of times all over the world from India to Israel. He's taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, the American Jewish University, uh, at Hunter College and at UCLA. He's the author of eight books, including the national bestseller, Making Lost Matter, and his most recent book, David, the Divided Heart, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Awards. In addition to books, he's a prolific writer, contributing to the New York Jewish Work Week, Jerusalem Post, the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Time Magazine, Newsweek, The Atlantic, and more and more. Tonight, as we all know, he's going to speak on anti-Semitism. And we're doubly fortunate to have Rabbi Wolpe talking about anti-Semitism. He's frequently spoken on this topic. He was a keynote speaker at Elnet in Paris in 2019, where he addressed European political leaders on combating new forms of anti-Semitism. He's written widely on the topic including in his book, Why Be Jewish, where he wrote, hatred of the Jewish people is one of the most heinous, per, uh, persistent strains of history. Uh, though fed by many streams, including theological myths, economic fears, political calculation, and pure hatred of difference, no explanation is sufficient. The hatred is pure because it is truly based upon nothing. It originates not in reason, but murky, irrational fears. Rabbi Wolpe's credentials to speak on anti-Semitism are not simply because he's a deep thinker or a writer, teacher, scholar, or historian, but so far as I know, he's the only rabbi to have testified in court on anti-Semitism after having been certified by the judge as an expert on the topic. While Rabbi Wolpe is realistic about the dangers of anti-Semitism, he also does not despair. Rather, he writes, one reason to be Jewish is that Judaism gives us the inspiration, energy, and will to ensure that even from the midst of the Valley of Hinnom, a promise of Eden survives. So with that, Rabbi Wolpe. Uh, I want to thank Carrie for that beautiful introduction and Michael for inviting me to the men's club um, and the men's club for agreeing with Michael. Um, 
the, the problem with speaking about anti-Semitism is it's a much larger topic than you can possibly cover in a short talk. And so I warn you in advance that what happens whenever you talk about something like this is that someone will say, well, why didn't you mention that? And I want you to know in advance, I thought of whatever it is that I didn't mention, but I didn't have time to mention it. Um, so uh, please understand that this is not at all a comprehensive survey of anti-Semitism or all the things that Jews have endured or all the implications of anti-Semitism. But it is, I, I hope, uh, uh, highlighting of where anti-Semitism comes from where it exists today, and one or two suggestions about what we might do um, in the future to make things uh, a little bit better. And I want to begin by reminding us always that of something that I heard um, George Martin uh, said, the guy who wrote uh, Game of Thrones, um, Another historian was having lunch with him, and, and George Martin said to him, the Nazis have ruined villains. Because when I wrote villains, they were complex. There were part of them that were good, and part of them that were bad, and they were full of, of complicated motives, and so on. And now when people think of villains, they think of Nazis. And Nazis were just bad. There was very little redeeming about Nazism. And so I almost want to say that Nazis have also ruined anti-Semitism because there is a huge range of different kinds of prejudice in this world, and not everyone who says something bad about Jews is a Nazi. To be a Nazi is a really very, either very high or very low standard, depending on how you want to look at it. And the first thing we have to say about anti-Semitism is that it comes in many, many different forms and many different degrees. And some are more remedial than others. And some are more in-baked than others. And some, frankly, are more dangerous than others. And this it shares with every other kind of hatred in the world. Nobody hates or loves to the exact same degree that everybody else does. And that's why I want to begin by saying that anti-Semitism did not begin in anti-Semitism. By which I mean, when the Egyptians hated the Jews, or the Assyrians hated the Jews, they didn't hate the Jews the way the Nazis hated the Jews, or the Israelites, if you prefer. Um, the Assyrians... The Babylonians, they were cruel to other tribes and groups, too, that they hated. And they drove them into exile. And they ultimately destroyed them, after all, which is why we don't know about most of them. And it's not surprising that groups throughout history have hated each other. We just don't know what was going on in the ancient world. If I ask you, what do you think? the Jebusites felt about the, felt about the Amorites. You'll say, I have no idea. But for all we know, they hated them just as much as the Amorites probably hated the Israelites because they were another group that weren't themselves. And the beginning of hatred of a group is that they're other. It's that simple. Anti-Semitism as we know it, as you'll see in a minute, 
is a later development. And so I don't want us to think people have always hated the Jews the way the Nazis hated the Jews. Because we have to make distinctions if we're going to treat different manifestations of anti-Semitism differently. And so we begin by understanding that in the ancient world, what distinguished the Jews was not just their belief in one God, because my guess is most of the tribes around them didn't even know what they meant by that. It's not like everybody is an expert in theology. They thought the Jews worship their God, we worship our God, they worship their God, and we don't like anyone but our God, and if we get conquered, then we'll worship their God, right? It was much later on that people started to understand that the Jews worshiped a different sort of God from the God that they worship. But at the beginning, it was just hatred of the other. And that's really important to remember because distrust and hatred of the other is a deeply rooted feeling in human nature. It's true all across the board. You know, I always give the example of like when a new kid comes on the playground or comes into school. The other kids aren't immediately welcoming to them because they're different. Or when the other team comes along, my brother, who's a sociologist, says the reason we like sports so much is because it allows us to hate. And it's okay. You're allowed to hate the other team, right? But it is amazing how much you can actually hate the other team just because they're the other team. And then, by the way, if they trade one of their players to your team, then all of a sudden, you don't hate them anymore, at least not that player, because now he's on your team. So at the bottom of all the kinds of different hatreds that exist in humanity is this innate distrust of the other, which, to which we will return. So the Romans disapproved of Jewish customs. Like, I think it was Seneca who wrote about how horrible circumcision was. A terrible custom, and you can imagine from Seneca's point of view what a terrible custom it was, but it was especially terrible because it wasn't Roman. And it's not like the Romans hated the Jews and loved the other tribes. We know, for example, the word barbarian comes from the Greek, which is how they imagined other languages sounded bar, 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 right? Everybody else talked nonsense, only the Greeks spoke the proper language. So this idea that we're better and that other people are bad, which is part of what is at the root of anti-Semitism, is a deeply human idea. And it's important not only because we have to recognize that we have it in ourselves, but also because we have to know what it is we're combating when we combat anti-Semitism. It's something that actually has deep roots in human nature, not just in the particular hate of the anti-Semite. Now, were there those that hated Jews particularly because Judaism introduced this idea of an ethical God that makes you accountable for your actions in this world? I have no doubt that there were people who felt that way. But it took a long time for that to become the currency of the world and for people to understand that that's what Jews thought, right? Because one of the things that, this is one of the things that I must say Jews sometimes err. Um, we assume that other people understand us 
even though if you ask most Jews, so tell me, what do Sikhs believe? They'll go, I don't know what Sikhs Obviously, people hate Jews for what they believe. But the answer is most people didn't know what Jews believed, just like most Jews didn't know what other people believed. All they knew was that Jews had this strange system, and they worshiped this strange God, and they didn't like it. And I think, at least for me, that was the essence. It wasn't all of anti-Semitism, but that was the essence of anti-Semitism, the difference being that the Jews, unlike other tribes, survived. The Jebusites might have been just as hated as the Jews by the Romans, except that the Jebusites had disappeared a long time ago. It didn't matter, right? And the Romans started to hate the Jews when? When the Jews said, we won't worship your emperor. That, all of a sudden, things started to change. If we're the overwhelming power and you won't worship what we tell you to worship, now, all of a sudden, we have a problem. And the problem, of course, becomes much more serious and compounded when Christianity enters the scene. And now we're changing from hatred of this weird people to hatred of Jews. Those of you who don't have much of a background in how this happened, I'm not going to do a lot um, about it, but let me just say a few words about Christianity because it's not the same as any other relationship that Jews have with other traditions. Remember that Jesus is Jewish. The fact that Jesus is Jewish and then is thought of by Jews as being God and other Jews don't think that Jesus is God causes several problems on a psychological level. One is it starts off, the, the, the quarrel between Jews and Christians starts off as a family quarrel. And I don't have to tell you that the most vicious fights are inside families, right? Because you can say anything about people in your family. Nobody else should say, but you can say anything about people in your family. And in fact, Jews and Christians said terrible things about each other in the early years. And then the problem is that those things got put in sacred scriptures. Because when it says, and I'm going to read you, when Pontius Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but the tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person, then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. That line has done more damage to Jews than any other line in history. But what is that really saying? That's saying that his own people betrayed him, right? And we're the small number of the people that didn't betray him. It had nothing to do with the Romans because Pontius Pilate, even though the Romans had all the power, he washed his hands of it, and therefore it's to be blamed on the Jews. But understand the psychological underpinnings of this. Let's say you're God, and you walk among your own people. And how many disciples does Jesus have? Well, now there are thousands of Jews. Can you imagine a God who's so unimpressive that everybody who knows him doesn't think he's God? What does that mean? It means either Jesus wasn't so impressive or the Jews are stupid or wicked. There's no other choice. Well, the other choice is Jesus isn't God, but of course that's not a choice that the early Christians would make. And therefore the Jews had to be wicked because they rejected the obvious God in their midst. It couldn't be that Jesus didn't seem like God to them. And when you 
start out from that premise, and it's almost the inevitable premise of a God who walks on earth and his own people don't recognize him as God. When you start off from that premise, then you either have to get them to recognize it, and remember, that's what Christianity has been doing for thousands of years, is trying to get Jews to correct that mistake, or you have to show the way in which God punishes them for their wicked rejection of him. And that's the other thing that Christianity had done for Jews for thousands of years. One of the reasons, you may not know this, why Jews shouldn't call the Western Wall the Wailing Wall is the reason it was called the Wailing Wall is that in medieval times, Christians would only allow Jews to go to the wall once during the year on Tisha B'Av, the commemoration of the destruction of the temple, to show them what happens to people who reject Jesus. And what did Jews do as they walked by the wall on Tisha B'Av? They cried. So it was the Wailing Wall. But you can understand psychologically from a Christian point of view why this made perfect sense, that the Jews were wicked. And this sort of turbocharges the otherness of the Jews. Because if you don't have any relation to their tradition and they're different, so you hate them for being different like everyone else is different. But if they rejected and even worse, killed your God, and your God came from among them and they didn't even see it, we're terrible. We're terrible. And that was the mainstream Christian belief for a very long time. In 2004, 2004, because I went back, God bless the computer, it has a perfect memory. Um, I wrote this. Recently, our synagogue hosted Father Ball, the professor of film at the Vatican Pontifical Institute in Rome. I don't know if any of you remember that we hosted him, but we did. The purpose was to discuss The Last Temptation, the Mel Gibson movie, which he severely criticized, but along the way, he discussed his own upbringing. He said he was taught growing up in French Canada to fear when he walked by a synagogue because the Jews might run out and snatch him. That's what he believed. I mean, and we're saying 2004, so he grew up, what, in the 60s, the 70s? We're not talking about 100 years ago. He couldn't play with Jewish children. In church, he recited scriptural comments about the perfidious Jews. That means the betraying Jews. Yet well into adulthood, if you had asked him, are you anti-Semitic? Father Ball would have insisted he was not. It took him a long time to recognize that the attitudes he harbored were anti-Semitic. In other words, it was so ingrained in Christian culture that Jews were bad. The thinking they were bad didn't seem like a prejudice. It just seemed like what everybody knew about Jews, because we're talking about thousands of years. And I know from my own experience, talking sometimes to people who harbor anti that they don't say about themselves that they're anti-Semitic. They just think this is actually the way the world is. Just like sometimes people harbor prejudices about other groups and they say, it's not a prejudice, this is just the way they are. I can't help it, that's just the way they are. That's exactly what Christians thought about Jews for a long time, except when it was even worse than that. And they thought of themselves as hating Jews, which, of course, some anti-Semites do. Now, it was a force in Muslim culture as well, because Muhammad had essentially, in some ways, the same experience with Jews that the Christians did, which is, he said, here's the new religion. Obviously, you're all going to want this new religion. And they said, no. And that made them wicked, because how could you reject this, which is clearly the truth, 
unless you're a wicked person. And so you get, again, enshrined in sacred scriptures, those um, same dangerous things in different words that you get in, uh, in Christian culture. Um, so the Jews are cursed by Allah, and when the end time comes, they're going to hide behind rocks and trees, and the rocks and trees are going to call out, there's this Jew hiding behind me, come kill him. In other words, the same idea that these people are obviously wicked, or they would adopt the majority culture religion. And now we're very far from disliking the other, and we're in the territory of what we call anti-Semitism. Special, unique hatred for Jews. Um, and the expectation, by the way, was that sooner or later, the Jews would recognize this, at least in Christian culture. Sooner or later, they would. I don't know how many of you know the poem To His Coy Mistress by Andrew Marvel. Um, it's a famous poem in English literature where this guy tries to convince a woman to go to bed with him because, after all, they're not going to live forever, right? That's, the, that's what the poem is about. And he says that if, in fact, we would live forever, you could... If you so please refuse till the conversion of the Jews. That's what he writes, this English poet. And what he's saying is you could, for a long time, you could say no to me. It wouldn't matter if we lived forever. We could wait until the Jews finally convert. But in other words, it was so much a part of popular culture that he could write that in a poem and everybody would understand what he meant because that was the expectation. So those are the origins, at least in part. The difference and then the rejection of that which should have been obvious to all the Jews, Jesus, Muhammad, mainly. And I say mainly because, yeah, there were other smaller anti-Semitic eruptions in other cultures, but by and large it was the monotheistic cultures that Jews gave birth to that were the most antithetical or had the most antipathy to Jews, hated them the most because they were the ones that expected that the Jews would finally recognize that they had rejected God or God's teaching. So, for most of Jewish history, there were varying levels of this um, antagonism. And I don't want to either understate it or overstate it. By which I mean, on the one hand, Jews lived sometimes awful lives in lots of the countries in which they were forced to sojourn and they were sometimes kicked out of and brought back into. But on the other hand, it is also true that many Jews lived much better lives than we sometimes suspect. And we have a lot of records of Jews trading and having good relations with their neighbors and so on. And as you know, you can harbor a religious prejudice against somebody and still be nice to them and do business with them. Right? One of the things about anti-Semitism, which is really important to remember, is people are complicated. Somebody can really hate Jews and still want Jews to be their business manager and lawyer. And, and not feel like that's a contradiction at all, because I really like this guy. I just don't like the people in general, but this guy's a great guy and he helps me. And by the way, the reverse is also true, right? Somebody can hate Jews because one Jewish person did something to them they don't like. And so when you realize that people are complicated, then all of a sudden anti-Semitism becomes a cluster of phenomena, not a phenomenon. And different anti-Semites have to be 
<laughs> dealt with differently. So after the Second World War, after the worst manifestation of anti-Semitism in history, after the Nazis, which deserves its own lecture, but I don't think um, at least the people here don't need that lecture um, right now. Uh, after the Second World War, um, after the um, ability to point to the Jews as the scapegoat for everything that was going wrong, after that exploded, after that no longer became reasonable or practical for anyone to do, anti-Semitism sort of went underground for a while. And many of us who grew up in the United States grew up in sort of the halcyon days of Jews in the United States where um, anti-Semitism was not a major factor in public discourse. I can count on one hand the number of times growing up as a Jew in the United States I faced real anti-Semitism face to face. Now, part of the reason that that's so is that I lived in major urban centers in Philadelphia, New York, and Los Angeles where there were a large population of Jews. You wouldn't say the same thing if you'd grown up in the, midi, in the middle Midwest or um, in smaller uh, towns all over America where Jews were not as well known. But nonetheless, most Jews felt safe. And then in the past, I don't know, 20 to 30 years, a shift started to take place on several fronts. First of all, Israel was no longer seen as a beleaguered underdog. A beleaguered underdog is a position in which the world is very comfortable to see Jews. When we're on the edge of extinction, the world is fine. That's our like assigned place throughout history, right? We're not, we're, you can wait till the conversion of the Jews, but they're always almost there, right? The one thing that Jews never were Throughout, there were individual powerful Jews, but the Jews were never powerful except in the fevered imaginations of anti-Semites, right? Um, but now, all of a sudden, Israel exists, and Israel is not on the brink of extinction. After 67 and 73, Israel is actually proves to be more powerful than the, than the nations around it. Second, a certain anti-Western prejudice that you're aware of creeps into the world, and Israel is, after all, we used to say very proudly it's the Western outpost in the Middle East. Now when you say it's the Western outpost in the Middle East, half of the people you talk to like it, and half of the people you talk to think that's a bad thing to be the Western outpost in the Middle East. Um, and then third, there was a certain return of the repressed, by which I mean... Um, it's not like anti-Semitism went away, but everybody responds to social pressures. Everybody does. And there are things that you, I, I, that's why I was actually discussing this the other day um, with some younger people, and I was saying to them, if anybody ever tells you they don't care what anyone says, they're lying. They may be lying to themselves, they may be lying to you, but they're lying. There's no human being who doesn't get affected by the opinions of people around them. That's, we're social creatures. That's just the way it works. Um, and if you don't believe me, just look at the fact that everybody basically dresses alike, everybody basically talks alike, everybody basically listens to the same music depending on their age group. We're all molded by these social pressures. And for a long time, there was no socially acceptable way of expressing, I hate Jews. 
You couldn't do it, right? When I grew up, if somebody would say something like that, which happened a couple of times, as I said, I, I counted it here or there, everybody else thought, that's horror. How could you say such a, that's a terrible thing to say. But then there came to be a way by which you could express it, and it was no longer socially unacceptable. You weren't saying, I hate Jews. You were just saying, I hate Israel. And for some people, and I don't want to say for everyone, but for some people, this was a very comfortable substitute for that which they couldn't say. And I think that the weird thing about this is um, that, as you know, no matter what it is that you hate, if you hate Jews, they fit. Like, if you hate the left wing, it's the Jews. If you hate the right wing, which these days is the imperial America, Israel, it's the Jews. If you, I mean, it doesn't, if you hate capitalism, it's the Jews. If you hate communism, it's the Jews. We did everything. So there's no way in which, if you hate Jews, you can't find a reason. And Israel, for many people, is the, is the easiest reason. Um, to hate Jews uh, or to, to assign your Jew hatred to. Having said that, I don't think is when people ask if anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, and that's a constant question, um, my answer to that is very often. But again, I go back to people are more complicated than you think. And as I'll get to in the solution, when I get to the solutions, when I get to the responses, I'll say more about why I don't say all the time. There's a reason for it. But now we face anti-Semitism on both the left and the right. And I want to quote to you uh, something that Deborah Lipstadt said. When someone asked, are the, are the anti-Semitisms on the left and the right the same or different? Um, and I would say, I, don't want to, I want to indict both and neither. That is, the left will say that the right is the violent faction. The right will say that the left, it's more mainstreamed. And this is what Deborah Lipstadt has to say. We're not talking about completely different phenomena. They're the same because they rely on the same stereotypical elements. In other words, the things that they say about Jews on the far left and the far right are the same things. We're just as dishonest on, as we, on the left as we are on the right. We control the world the same way on the left as we do on the right. Um, on it, we ally ourselves with evil powers on the left and the right. They may not be the same evil powers, but they're evil powers on both. And so even though they operate differently, and we can talk a lot about the differences, it's much more important for the Jewish community to hear the strain wherever it happens than to distinguish the political origin of the strain. That is, we have to be, we have to be equally attuned to every instrument in the orchestra of hate can't only hear the violins and not hear, you know, the horns, and vice versa. So, um, and then, by the way, there's a third that's not left or right, which is a significant strain that doesn't quite fit either one, and that, of course, is Islamic um, fundamentalism, which is its own variation of anti-Semitism and borrows a lot, by the way, from Christian anti-Semitism of the Middle Ages. Uh, so the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which you can find all over the Arab world now, was a forgery that was written in Russia that talks about how um, the Jews control the world. 
And, and part of the way you, I don't know that you know, but part of the interesting um, explanation of the, you, the Christian origin of all this was given by Hyman Maccabee, who was an English scholar of uh, Jewish history and particularly of anti-Semitism. And he said that anti-Semitism is the only hatred where the object of the hatred is both subhuman and superhuman. For the Nazis, we were the vermin who were controlling the world. It's a very weird thing. But here's his answer to why that's so. He says, everybody that you hate you think is less than you. But don't forget that the Jews killed God. You have to be superhumanly evil to kill God. So in the Christian mind, he said, they were both less than us and somehow wickedly greater than us. And I don't, it's a very interesting theory, and it fits because it certainly is true if you think about it that people think of Jews as people, anti-Semites think of Jews as somehow less than themselves, and yet we manage to control the world, which is a remarkable feat for vermin. Um, but whether it's of left or of right, one of the th things that's really important to remember is that anti-Semitism is a metastasizing hatred, by which I mean that it takes new forms and it, and it shows up in places that we don't necessarily expect. And that's one of the reasons why I insist to people that they have to pay attention to the anti-Semitism on their own side, because tomorrow it will somehow leap from the side that you don't like in one way or another to another side and vice versa. It's not like you can contain anti-Semitism in a little box and it will just stay there. It never has throughout history, and it's not going to now. And so wherever it appears on either side, it's our responsibility to call it out, even if that makes people upset. Um, so that's a little bit about the origin and a little bit about the existence. Now, here are my prescriptions. Um, and this has to do with why I don't say that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Prescription number one. You should never assume malice when you can assume ignorance. More people are ignorant than are malicious. And a lot of, if you go on a college campus, I haven't done this survey, but I'm so confident of it that I will tell you it's true. If you go on a college campus and you ask all the students who say they hate Israel, the most elementary questions about the Middle East, they know nothing. They know nothing. All they know is that everybody they know tells them to hate Israel, and they know as much about Israel as most of the people in this room probably know about the situation in Kashmir, which is very little for most of us. So I always assume when somebody makes a comment, that doesn't mean you can't, don't have to call it out or you don't have to explore it or you don't have to contradict it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the person is anti-Semitic until you have more evidence than just they said something horrible about Israel because most people don't. They, they, Jews think everybody thinks about us, but most people shockingly are thinking about themselves and then occasionally <laughs> make a remark about us. Um, but that's why if we start with malice, if we start with ignorance first, then we don't do the second problem, which is we treat every eruption 
of a distasteful comment as though the sky is falling. And that's not a good strategy. And the reason it's not a good strategy is because people stop listening. They it's one thing if a major public figure makes a series of anti-Semitic comments. And here, let's just take an example, Kanye West. Okay? That's different. Major public figure, lots of influence, makes many anti-Semitic comments. But I have to tell you, and I know that I'm in the minority about this, when a teenager runs out in a neighborhood in Brentwood and paints a swastika on the wall, I don't want to call a public meeting. It's a 17 or 18-year-old who, for a billion different reasons that you can imagine, a lot of them having nothing to do with any kind of organized opinion of the Jewish community, does something that he knows will get a huge rise out of people, and then we react like Pavlovian dogs as though this is the biggest issue that ever came. We really have to be more judicious in choosing our targets. And the reason that we don't in part is because the same thing that that teenager knows we know, which is anti-Semitism gets reaction. And so we as a Jewish community, I know if I post something about anti-Semitism, it'll get a much bigger reaction than if I talk about how nice Shabbos is. It just will. So you always go for the thing that gets more reaction. But that's, that's a dangerous strategy. And let me just say, without naming other groups, we see from other groups how that strategy starts to make us deaf to legitimate complaints. Because when you complain about everything, then people start to discount your legitimate complaints about things that you really should complain about. So that's the, uh, the second thing we have to remember. The third is that we should not assume that people can't change. And my best evidence for this is what I started the origins of an proper anti-Semitism with, and that is the Christian world. There is a lot of anti-Semitism left in the Christian world, no question. But it is radically different from what it was 100 years ago, 50 years ago. It's so different that to think that anti-Semitism can't change is just a terrible historical mistake because we see how much it has changed in the Christian world. Um, and uh, and that, that is cause for really tremendous optimism. Um, one of the things that I've experienced now, I'm old enough to see this, is that people assume that nothing will change and then it changes. And then they assume that nothing else will change. So. The day before the Soviet Union collapsed, everybody knew the Soviet Union was going to be our enemy forever. All of a sudden, it was gone. It was gone. Before the Abraham Accords, everybody knew that all the Arab nations were always going to hate us. All of a sudden, well, maybe they don't. And so once you have a couple of examples of people can actually change, then we should realize that people can actually change. And that's a very, very, very good thing for us to keep in mind, and it also keeps you a little bit farther from despair. And, and this, um, many of you have heard me say this before, but that will not prevent me from saying it again. This is why I don't think that America is analogous to other. When people say, could it happen here? And by the way, again, when they say, could it happen here? What they always mean is a Holocaust, right? But there are a lot of bad things that can happen short of a Holocaust. 
But here is the difference between America and most of Jews and most of Jewish history. For most of Jewish history, we were the identified other. There were Frenchmen and Jews, as the president of France once said, right after a bomb went off. Frenchmen and Jews were killed, right? There were Russians and Jews. There were Germans and Jews. But there aren't Americans and Jews. Because Americans are such a salad of different ethnicities and different religions and different groups that it's not like people walk on the street and go, ah, this is American, American, American Jew, American, American, American Jew. It doesn't work that way. If there is an identified other in America, clearly, for most of American history, it's blacks, not Jews. Now, that doesn't mean that there has not been anti-Semitism in America. There's been more anti-Semitism in America than we sometimes actually acknowledge. As Dara Horn writes in her really wonderful book, which if you haven't read, I strongly recommend, called People Love Dead Jews. Um, it's a very good book. And one of the essays in that book talks about how all these Jews will tell you that their name was changed by the guard at Ellis Island, right? My name was Wojnitsky, but the guard couldn't pronounce it, so he wrote it as wax. But in fact, she says, that's not true. The guards didn't change anyone's name. They barely wrote anyone's name. People changed their own names because they didn't want to face anti-Semitism and then later didn't want to say they changed their own names because either they were ashamed or they didn't want to say there was anti-Semitism. And so they said it was changed at Ellis Island. But people have gone back and looked at all the records and the names weren't changed. So, But that tells you already that there was anti-Semitism in America. It was real. Any country in the world, certainly any country that was founded on a monotheistic by a mon one of the great monotheistic faiths, by Muslims or by Christians, was going to have anti-Semitism in it, and America was no exception. The exception was, of course, that from the start there was an official policy against it. You see George Washington's letter, and also that there were so many different groups that it wasn't like all of America ganged up to get the Jews. So that's still the case. It is still the case that if I said to you before you were about to be born, would you like to be born as an American Jew? You would say, yeah, that'd probably be pretty good. On average, like if you have a choice of all the different like ethnicities in the world and all the different countries, and I said to you, one of your choices is American Jew, that would be pretty high up on your list. So that's also important to know is that our um, reaction to anti-Semitism ought to be based on the knowledge that we are far more secure and fortunate than any Jewish community in modern history, um, or ain't, and certainly in ancient history. And then lastly, um, well, no, next to lastly, penultimately, um, we still have to be really careful because there are a lot of tripwires in Jewish history, and we know this. And even though I think that, no, there is actually zero possibility that what happened in Germany could happen in America, a lot of bad things can happen that aren't the thing that happened in Germany. That's what I said before. In some ways, the Nazis have ruined anti-Semitism because people think there's either a Holocaust or nothing. And, and as we know from Jewish history, there have been a lot of really awful things that have happened that were not Holocausts. 
And before the Holocaust, if you'd asked a Jew, has anything bad ever happened in Jewish history, they'd give you a very, 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 very long list of really terrible things that the Holocaust wiped out of memory for most of us because it was so overwhelmingly, catastrophically, unimaginably terrible. Um, but we have seen in the past several years attacks on synagogues, um, attacks on Jews, attacks in Brooklyn that go virtually unreported in the Hasidic community. Um, and so we have to be vigilant about the fact that anti-Semitism can do a lot of damage in this world short of the most cataclysmic kind of damage. Um, and then five, and I say this especially because this weekend um, on Monday, we're celebrating uh, Martin Luther King's day and tomorrow night we have the service um, the unity service, which is for other groups, Jews have a responsibility that is both ethical and self-interested in recognizing their suffering. And I mean that other groups everywhere. Um, I mean, there is a reason why uh, Jews have been in the forefront of civil rights, um, why uh, Israel um, does tremendous work in places like Africa and Europe, uh, why I think Jews believe, I hope, that people's suffering diminishes us. It's not only because after all, we're called to recognize the suffering of other peoples, but also because we indict the world for not recognizing our suffering. And you can't do that if you don't recognize the suffering of other people. And the game of who is the greatest victim is a really fruitless and unproductive game. So what I'm going to speak about actually um, on Friday night is... Uh, is King's comment from Birmingham jail in his famous letter where he says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We're caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And as Jews, we know this. As small as we are, and we're tiny, we're like really tiny. Those of you who were there when Rabbi Artson was speaking on Sunday morning, remember, He's, he put it, we discussed the fact that Jews were 0.2% of the world, but he put it the other way. He said that means 99.98% of the world is not Jewish. Okay? 99.98% of the world. And yet, what has happened to the Jews and the suffering of the Jews has profoundly affected the fate of the world. Profoundly. So if that's true, and we're such a tiny group, does not the suffering of the Ukrainians have a huge, enormous effect on the fate of the world, right? Or suffering in Rwanda or Bosnia or of different groups here at home. So I really think that part of combating anti-Semitism is recognizing that other people suffer as well. And if you only care about your own suffering, um, remember what Hillel said. He starts off by saying, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? Um, but then he says, if I am only for myself, ma'ani, what am I? In other words, he can't even express what it is to be only for yourself. And the Jewish community 
I think, uh, at times forgets that lesson. Um, but at other times, especially, I think, in the history of our country, has uh, represented it gloriously, and I hope continues to do so. Um, and I will uh, close with Rabbi Tarfon's admonition, which is, Lo right? We're not going to defeat anti-Semitism in this generation. That's a loose translation. What he really said is, it's not yours to finish the work. But we won't. By the time everybody in this room is gone, people will still harbor prejudices against Jews. But you're also not allowed to not fight the battle. Just because you won't be able to con conquer it doesn't mean you're not, that you're free from fighting it. And I think on all these fronts, um, the front of judiciousness, thoughtfulness, um, but also willing to shout when shouting is necessary, and not only to shout for ourselves, but for others, I think together um, with all of that, we can make it, if not perfect, at least better. So with that, I am happy to take questions or comments. Don, right there, Don has already raised his hand. He had the question before I even started. Thank you. The other, the, the question that was unanswered. Uh, I'll repeat it. Just say it. I'll repeat the question. Go ahead. Beg your pardon? Just finish the question and I'll repeat it. The, the impact of the concept of the chosen people with respect to anti-Semitism. I think the concept of the chosen people had almost no impact on anti-Semitism. And the reason I say that is, be, is that, uh, as, as we talked about on Sunday morning, ev virtually every people thinks that they're chosen. I mean, think of the Christians. What do you have to do to get into heaven? You have to believe in Jesus. We never said you have to believe in anything. So obviously, the chosen, the elect, Calvin talked about the elect. He literally used those words, the elect. Nobody said, let's kill all the Calvinists. And I talked on Sunday morning about my experience with the Dalai Lama when he asked me about chosenness. And I said, yeah, Jews think we're chosen, but we don't think that nobody else is chosen for various other missions. And he goes, he laughs and said, yeah, Tibetans think we're chosen too. Um, as I really believe that chosen is one more example of the way in which if you want to hate Jews, you have a whole menu, you have a buffet, right? You can choose almost anything you want. It's a protean hatred. It takes lots and lots of forms. But I don't believe for a second that if Jews never said they were chosen, there wouldn't have been pretty much the same level of anti-Semitism. At least that's what I believe. Thank you, Rabbi Wolfie, for a very insightful talk. You know, uh, one might think that one has heard everything there is about anti-Semitism until one hears you. A uh, question I have is about your remark that... Um, uh, anti-Zionism is mostly anti-Semitism, but not all. So sometimes I guess there is a minority of occasions when uh, comment or stand against the policy of the Israeli government might not uh, be the hatred of Jews. So what advice do you have about how we can tell one from the other? Because there is right. some people might say it's all one. So uh, how do you tell if you tell one from the how can you tell one from the other about anti Zionism and anti Semitism? First of all, if the people involved are ultra Orthodox Jews, it's probably not anti Semitism. I say that because there are anti Zionists who are ultra Orthodox Jews who think that the state shouldn't exist. 
You have a very small minority, but they exist. They're not anti-Semitic. Um, I don't have a foolproof way, but I would say the best way is this. If somebody applies their principles consistently, they're much more likely to be not anti-Semites. In other words, if they march against Tibet as well as marching against Israel, and they march against Putin as well as marching against Israel, and they make incorrect analogies between those three things, um, march for Tibet, I guess, not against Tibet, um, then I'm much more inclined. But if Israel is the sole focus of their hatreds, then I wonder why it is that Israel is the sole focus of their hatred. And even then, is it a perfect? No, it's not perfect. But, uh, but at a certain point, I don't know how much the distinction matters. Because it's not a question of how you label people, it's a question of how you combat them. And combating them, when someone says, I think Israel shouldn't exist, you have to argue for why Israel should exist. I mean, what are you going to do? Say you're an anti-Semite and dismiss them? Yeah, you can do that too. But we have to, we have to tease out the arguments and make arguments against the arguments. That's the only way, because one of the one of the problems is for every person who has a developed argument about why Israel shouldn't exist, there are 100 people who are listening to them. So if all you say is you're an anti-Semite, you haven't changed any of those 100 people. But maybe if you engage them in an argument, you might have the possibility of changing some. It's long, arduous work, but I don't know how else to do it. And, and also just Think about how many things in your life you've changed your mind about. I've changed my mind about lots of things, including things I never thought I'd change my mind about. So, who knows? It's worth, it's worth a shot. About American anti-Semitism and how we position. Curious how you see European anti-Semitism. What is left of it now? Has it changed? And how does that? impact American and American. So let me start with what, how has European anti-Semitism changed? Um, and how does it impact American anti-Semitism if it does? Um, so I'm going to say that I think that, uh, that um, the result of bad policy in the Middle East is just about the most significant foreign policy um, catastrophe in the last 50 years that caused the huge immigration of uh, Muslims from the Middle East to Europe and, and changed Europe, is changing Europe, and certainly made it less hospitable to Jews. I mean, it has a lot of other consequences too, but it made it much less hospitable to Jews and I think clearly um, made anti-Semitism a much greater factor in Europe than it is in America. And I would say that for two reasons. The percentage of Muslims in Europe is still much, much smaller than most, especially Americans, assume. It's still way, I, I don't remember what the percentages were, but I was shocked at how small it is compared to what we think. Um, because just like people think that the, you know, Jews tend to cluster in major urban centers, so do immigrants. So people go to London and say, oh my God, all of England is obvious, but the, the percentages are still very small. However, um, what has changed 
is uh, that the sort of, I think, not just the presence of Muslim anti-Semitism, which is which then clashes with um, the idea that if you say anything against it, you're what used to be called politically very incorrect. Like to to criticize Muslims is to criticize a minority that is already embattled, and therefore you shouldn't do that. Um, which is why you get, for example, like the ridiculous. Um, remember when Salman Rushdie, when the fatwa first came out, how few major figures got up and defended him. Um, and again, like the fact that he hasn't been, the fact that after he's assaulted, he's not on the front pages every day is shocking. Um, but also it gave cover for the, for the real return of the repressed in Europe, which is, um, I, okay, I'm going to draw an analogy. This is a dangerous analogy, but I hope you will understand it. No place likes to feel guilty, okay? Um, if you ask yourself, why is it that when I was growing up, I heard virtually nothing about Native Americans? It's because people don't want to talk about it because it made Americans feel bad, and people don't like to feel bad. Europe has had the Holocaust thrown in its face day after day, year after year. And I think that there is a resentment of the Jews that insist on continually talking about this terrible thing we did. And part of the resurgence of anti-Semitism is a resentment against Europe feeling its own guilt. They don't want to feel it, the guilt that they have. So what happens when you feel guilty about somebody is you dislike them instead. Um, so I think that there's a return of the resentment that Europe always had against Jews, and there's an influx of Muslim to major centers that expresses anti-Semitism without official sanction against it being as strong as it should be. Um, and Europe is worse than the United States in a lot of ways. The third factor that makes Europe worse is America is just much better about assimilating minorities. They're just better at it. They've been doing it forever and ever and ever. And so Minorities come to America, and we do much better at socializing them than uh, Europe does as a whole. So I also think that Muslims in Europe generally feel much more, if you take in surveys and so on, feel much more disenfranchised, much more um, put upon, much more prejudiced against, and therefore are much more resentful of the host country and don't absorb the host country as well as Muslims and many other groups do in America. So for all those reasons, I think um, the fate of Jews in America is much more sanguine than the fate of Jews in Europe. Uh, I think that it's a real battle uh, in Europe in a way that it's not and I don't think will be in America. And then finally, it's for the last reason I said, which is that European countries think of themselves as a something. We are the Swedes. We are the French. We are the English, and we have a majority culture that is English, French, Swedish. Americans don't have that as much. We have a multiplicity of, of cultures, yet it all sort of amalgamates into American, but it's not like immigrant culture isn't part of American culture. Nobody goes to a Chinese restaurant and thinks this is un-American. You just don't, right? Because of course it's American. That's exactly what America is. And it's right next to the Mexican restaurant. And it's right beside the Ethiopian restaurant. And that's America. 
but that most countries haven't traditionally thought that way. So Europe is off tourists. Uh, Rabbi, you said that no matter where we stand on the political spectrum, we ought to be vigilant in spotting anti-Semitism, calling it out, no, no matter where it's coming from. And as individual Jews, we look to our Jewish institutions sometimes to speak for us and to, to have a reaction. So could you share with us what you think the proper role of Jewish institutions are in responding to anti-Semitism? And second, the most prominent institution that we look to is the ADL. That was their, their, their principal focus. Do you think they're, they're approaching it in the right way? What kind of grade would you give them? Um, uh, how would you evaluate what they've been I'm doing? I'm going to give them a grade. I would say this. Um, it depends on which institution. I think the ADL has done some things right and some things wrong, um, which is unsurprising. But I also think that the pressures on Jewish institutions are very different from what they were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, I mean, so for example, the, uh, the former president of the ADL, whom everybody on a certain part of the political spectrum says, gee, I wish that this were the guy, I wish they would run it like he used to. He just made harsher comments about Israel than I have ever heard ahead of any major organization say. And the reason he did it is because he's not the head of a major organization anymore. Um, it's really tough when you're the head of a major Jewish organization and you have very powerful constituencies on all sides because the Jews are very divided. So what I would say is I do not envy um, the head of any major organization except for Sinai Temple. Uh, and, and there are things that I think are, are, are well done and badly done. But I would also say... Um, that one of the things that happens with almost every organization is that they are judged by big public statements. And the thousands of things that they do every single day, most people don't pay any attention to. So the ADL, I happen to know, does 9,000 investigations of anti-Semitism every year. Then what happens is the head of the ADL says something that people object to, and they say, ah, the ADL, it's all... It's Terrible, the ADL works. But those 9,000 investigations really matter. So I don't think that there's a black and white answer to be given here. And I certainly don't want to give a grade to such a complex um, operation. But it's, it is very hard to do anything in the Jewish world today without having a big, part, big and influential and thoughtful part of the Jewish world come down very heavily on your head. And, and as I said, it's not easy. It is not easy. So. You said that bad, bad Mideast policy led to immigration of Muslims to Europe and caused more anti-Semitism. I'm just wondering if you could go back 20 years, because I think we felt a lot of Anti-Semitism getting stronger in the past 20 years. The connection between 911 and our reaction and maybe the increase in anti-Semitism. Um, I see a reaction between 9-11 and, and the eventual series of events that led to the immigration of many Muslims to Europe. Um, look, I, I don't know that it led, it depends what you mean by an increase in anti-Semitism. I mean, I think that from what, I'm, from what I have read, 
I never grew up in Syria. But from what I read, basically anti-Semitism is imbibed with your mother's milk. So in terms of the quantity of anti-Semitism, it's not a question. It's the question of the location of the anti-Semitism. Um, and uh, I don't think anybody, I don't think almost anybody would say in the last 20 to 30 years, America's Middle East policy has been a success. Um, I, could, I can think of lots of failures, which I'll talk about. I'm happy to talk about privately, but I don't want to be a public policy right pundit publicly. Um, but I, I think that our intentions, I, I mean, I happen to believe that our intentions were almost uniformly good, but it's really hard to get the world right, and it's really easy to get things wrong. And the fact that, uh, you know, Iran is the mess that it is, and Syria is the mess that it is, and the Arab Spring died out, um, it's, not, uh, it's not great. So, now, I don't want to... Again, I don't want to assign all of this responsibility to America, obviously. We're not responsible for everybody and everybody's actions. Um, but I, I think maybe we could have done better. Who knows? Who knows? One of, the, one of the, of course, tremendous difficulties about something like foreign policy is you can't know what would have happened if we'd done something different. Right? Maybe it would have been twice as bad. Who knows? Um, but, uh, but there are at least a few things that I wish we had done differently. I'll put it that way. Uh, Michael mentioned that you had testified in his expert in a case. Can you share something about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. It was actually, uh, it was actually the uh, a hotel downtown that, uh, when it found out that the group was a Jewish group, wouldn't allow them into the pool and wouldn't allow them to use certain facilities of the hotel. And so these kids, and they were kids, they were, I mean kids, they were like tw in their 20s, they were young. This young group, I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was associated with the FIDF maybe? The FIDF, thank you. So they took her to court, the owner of the hotel. And they wanted someone to testify to whether it was a anti-Semitism. And so the lawyer who was a member of the congregation asked me if I would serve as an expert witness. And they deposed me, and they cross-examined me on, on the stand, which was actually, am I allowed to say it was kind of fun? It was kind of fun, um, especially because they won resoundingly. Uh, and, and also because the, um, the opposing counsel, who I don't think was much of an expert in anti-Semitism, um, tried to base his cross-examination on the idea that Semitism wasn't Jews. And, and that's so easily like, countered. Um, so anyway, uh, that's basically what happened. And, uh, and it, was, it was a really, it's the only time I've ever testified in court, thank God. Um, and it was a really interesting experience. And it was, uh, it was good to see uh, that the wheels of justice um, grind exceedingly fine sometimes. Uh, and, and she was, uh, she was fined some enormous amount of money, and all of them were compensated from the settlement. Thank you, Rabbi. Uh, we know, as you said, anti-Semitism started maybe religious reasons and all of that. Now I'm thinking in the modern world, jealousy has a lot to do with it. What's your thinking? Does jealousy have something a lot to do with anti-Semitism? So. Um, 
I yes, I absolutely agree, but I I'm, I prefer a different word. I prefer the word resentment um, because jealousy sometimes resentment is jealousy is I wish I had what you had. The resentment is uh, you shouldn't have it. I should have it, but you shouldn't have it. And I think for most anti-Semites, it's not like I would be okay if the Jews were wealthy as long as I was wealthy too. It's not that, because a lot of anti-Semites are very wealthy. It's really this sense um, that the Jews have what they have by some kind of unfair means. Now, how it is that all these Jews, for example, won Nobel Prizes by unfair means, I don't know. But I think that that's really the sense is like somehow they tricked their way into it because no group that is that small could be that successful if they weren't somehow loading the dice. Uh, and, and you can, and, and by the way, the weird thing is there's a very, there's a perfect logic to that. I mean, I'm mystified too. How many times I read an obituary about somebody who's incredibly accomplished and then you get to the end and it says, you know, his father was a Holocaust survivor. And I go, oh my God, I can't believe another one. Um, it's, it's like inconceivable to me how accomplished the Jewish people are. Uh, and, and I think, I mean, I think that it's, uh, it's not surprising that, um, that people who are given anyway this long history, as most people are, don't forget, one thing Eliezer Berkowitz said that was very smart about the Nazis. He said, the Nazis may not have been Christians, but they were all the children of Christians. And the same thing is true today. Like all those people who have resentment, maybe they themselves are not religious. They were brought up in a religion that at least opened the door, just like that man I read about, for resentment of Jews. So it's going to take a long time to wash that away. Um, and... And I, uh, I, I would just say that um, ultimately, and this is something that I think Carrie uh, mentioned or quoted at the beginning, ultimately, anti-Semitism doesn't have a reason. There's resentment, there's otherness, there's religious things, but ultimately the hatred is really irrational. It can, you can find reasons for it, but it's deeper than reason. It's just hatred. Recently, we just watched Madoff, which is, a, which is a documentary acting out. And what I noticed was that throughout the entire script, it was all the anti-Semitism um, tropes, conversations um, that continue the myths um, that we've heard throughout the centuries. And so the telling of the story of Madoff was to me actually a continuation of everything that... So this is, the, I'm glad you brought this up because as you're saying this, I realize there's one last thing I want to say about that and about... One is, yeah, it's, it's, sometimes, um, it's sometimes almost impossible for people to avoid those tropes unless they're really keenly aware of what they're saying. And I'm sure... I didn't watch Madoff, and I don't know that I will, but I'm sure that they came in. I thought that about the Lehman trilogy. Again, completely not, I don't think, at all intentional. But were those tropes there? Yeah, they were there. Um, the last thing that I think is really important, though, is 
what I said before about how, about how people change, there are many, 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 many millions of Christians and Muslims who are very well disposed towards Jews who could be allies. That's the other really important thing for us to know is that the Jewish community has to be willing to make alliances too um, and to reach out to people who are well disposed towards us. Um, that's one of, the, uh, one of the ways in which I think we can help insulate ourselves in the future is by not standing alone. And I think especially in America, but also throughout the world, sometimes it is uh, remarkable and wonderful. You know, like remember that, remember that story about what happened in Montana with the Hanukkah and then everybody in the city, there was an anti-Semitic attack and everybody in the city put a Hanukkah in their uh, window. I mean, that's a really, you know, that's a, a deeply American story. And I think that there is a huge reservoir of goodwill towards Jews and towards most um, people in this country. Uh, and we should be aware of that as well, which is one of the reasons why I don't want our public face to always be everyone hates us, everyone hates us. Because then people who don't hate us feel like we don't see them. Like we don't see them, I don't hate you. Why are you saying everyone hates you? I don't hate you. I actually, you know, I, I, I'm close with the Jewish people and think well of the Jewish people and all the people who are coming tomorrow night to speak on the pulpit. You know, they're all people who are very, who invite rabbis to their churches and come to synagogues, and they want to be seen too. So I think that that's really important, that dialogue with Muslims, dialogue with uh, Christians, dialogue with all religious groups, but especially other monotheistic groups, um, continues in the Jewish world. And uh, I want to thank the Men's Club for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Wolpe, for uh, discussing this important topic. I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight. I want to thank everybody for the great uh, questions. Um, just a, a couple of public service announcements. Uh, number one, I think Rabbi Wolpe has mentioned a few times, but I want to remind everyone to come this Friday evening to the Unity Shabbat. If you've never been to one, uh, it's fantastic. If you've been there, I looked at the lineup. It looks even uh, more enticing than many other years. So um, I want to bring that up. Number two, um, our, our the men's club uh, family, uh, we have the sisterhood. And I want to make sure that everyone is aware that the sisterhood will be having their Shabbat. By the way, the men's club Shabbat is the first Shabbat of Pesach. And we're going to be doing something special. But I want to be able to support the sisterhood in reminding that it's uh, January 28th. And what they're doing special afterwards is a, uh, a luncheon honoring Frances Katz. If you remember her, she always had these beautiful outfits and hats. And, um, and she was in the gift shop many, many afternoons. So they're honoring Frances. And there, uh, there is a cost to lunch. But please sign up and, and please support the, the uh, sisterhood. And uh, as I opened up February 7th, um, our own uh, Rick Richmond will be talking about his newest books. Rick, uh, how many books now have you published? Two. Uh, by the way, that's 200% more than myself. He can uh, compete against Rabbi Wolpe. Uh, I'll look for the competition. 
Ex excellent point. My second career. <laughs> uh, and I, uh, on February 7th, uh, please come to that. I mean, Rick is a prolific writer. Uh, he gets very deep, very quick. The, you, know, you go into the deep water very quickly. So uh, just put that on your calendars. And uh, with that being said, we'll be having dinner. I hope everyone can uh, stick around. Uh, by the way, if you choose to stay for dinner, uh, there is a, a suggested donation of $10. Uh, uh, but if not, um, you know, come and enjoy it on us. So with that being said, looking forward to see you uh, February 7th. Thank you, Rabbi Wolpe. Thank you, Brad.